Hey, it's the afternoon and we're live. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome to an afternoon Martin Luther King Day, Monday, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. It's Martin Luther King Day. Isn't it? I mean, we don't really have anything in particularly about that. I feel like we, we've done that. And to me, Martin Luther King Day is a day when like sort of neo-libs sat, sit out and give platitude salads and yet actually do nothing for anything that Martin Luther, like, I hate to tell them this, but he was a socialist. He was a, like, see, this is the problem. The neoliberals, they only want to talk about, yes, I don't see black. I don't see white. I see shades of gray. Yeah, that's great. How about a living wage and some health care? So, you know, it's, Clean they don't water. fight for the thing. For. Yeah, he was a socialist. When we talk about the, you know, things like water and the environment, we're talking about what does we need it, like communities of color that, are in cities and it never seems to work out that way. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a topic we will cover a little more extensively, but obviously first we do have a very special guest that we have convinced from the Middle East to come on our show. I know she's in, she's in Palestine. So why don't you introduce our Okay. So guys, we're doing this as part of our deconstructing Zionism series. And um, this is, this is somebody that I reached out to a while ago and we just, we couldn't coordinate for the original panel groups. And um, so her name is Rachel, and I want to say it's Bitari. I don't know. She'll correct me if I'm wrong. But um, she's the director of an organization called Zakrot. And Zakrot, I don't, I'm horrible with that. But anyway, the organization, the basis of this organization, it was founded and created by Israeli Jews um, to expose the Nakba. And we've talked about that a lot on this show, but I think it's really important. And obviously I've sort of taken that on as like a little mission to keep educating Jews because we were never taught the proper history. Um, And so we are going to talk about that today. Rachel Biatari. I don't think so. Welcome to Generational Change. Hi. Hi. How do you pronounce your last name? Good evening here. Good afternoon at your place. Nice nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on. Double click. Thank you so much. How how do you pronounce your name? Beterrier. Oh, my goodness. See, now that sounds French. French. (laughs) Well, it's not. So we we have been talking quite a bit here, and I don't know how much, like, I'm not sure what email version you got of my little history, but I'm a second generation Jew, um, raised in Flor- Floridian Jew, raised in North Miami Beach um, by very Zionist post-Holocaust grandparents, um, very fear-based uh, in, in the thinking, and, and I, I have come to realize that. It's taken me many years to deconstruct. That's why I call this deconstructing Zionism. Um, and the key thing that has stood out the most for me is that we weren't even taught about the Nakba. We weren't taught that we were taught. It was a land without a people for a people without a land, um, which we know isn't true. And I, I just, I find it so, um, insidious quite honestly. And I feel like it was very purposeful used and brainwashed, um, by, uh, Zionists, and I see that now as more of a white supremacist type of movement. Like my perspective is very different now. Um, but talk a little bit about, 
Um, your organization, I know, was in 2002 was when it started. But talk a little bit about what was going on that you were noticing, obvi- besides the obvious, at that time that this sort of came to be. Right. Um, so I am. I was raised up like like you did. I'm a third generation um, Jewish Zionist um, in Palestine. My grandparents immigrated here from Eastern Europe. Um, And, of course, I was raised on the notion that uh, our people came to a land with no people, to people with no land, that we were the few against the many, um, that, you know, there is this whole um, concept of uh, Geulat Adamot, redeeming the land, uh, and you must ask, redeeming it from whom? Um, and this is how I was raised, and this is how most Isra- Israeli Jews are, um, are raised, of course. Um, and zuchot means remembering in Hebrew, female form. And as you said, the purpose of the organization, our goal, is to expose the Nakba, to educate Israelis uh, about the Nakba, uh, but also about Palestinian right to return in our accountability, our responsibility uh, to the consequences of the Nakba that everyone who lives here, Palestinians and Israelis, still feel and are subject to today. So uh, that's the goal and the organization started in 2002 and I don't think it's a coincidence, it's around uh, the time of the collapse of the Oslo Accords in after the second intifada broke. And this is when many Israelis that consider consider themselves uh, leftists, myself included, uh, got disillusioned Mm -hmm. with the peace process. Uh, We're saying it led to more bloodshed. Uh, It didn't resolve in, in what they thought it would be. And I think at the time of Oslo, we all had a pretty naive and uninformed uh, notion of what this so-called Israeli-Palestinian conflict is. Um, and, and we're thinking that signing some papers without really resolving the, the core issues uh, will lead uh, to a new Middle East, as Shimon Peres was saying at the time, and, and you know, uh, basically better life to everyone without having to pay any price or take any responsibility for anything. And the group that started Zohot at the time were uh, Jewish Israelis who were very involved in dialogue groups, uh, you know, in uh, uh, peace negotiations that were very popular at the time also in the grassroots levels. Um, and met a lot with Palestinians. And after years of doing that, came to the realization that those talks are always coming to a dead end because for the Palestinians, the Nakba and the refugees question, uh, that's the start of the conversation. Uh, It's a term that has to be met, that has to be addressed uh, to have any meaningful negotiations at all. Whereas for Israelis, it's a complete taboo. We are not taught about the Nakba. We don't know anything about that. Uh, we grow up unaware uh, that we are growing up and living and uh, you know raising our families 
on the ruins of lives of other people. Uh, and there's so much denial about that. And when you are coming from uh, such different point of views um, and such different understanding of, of the same history, it's very hard to move forward. Uh, so this is why Zohot was established to uh, start education, educating Israelis and informing really about the Nakba and about the Palestinian history uh, of, of this land that some call Israel now. So this is really the goal. And I really identify with uh, your story of, of how you have uh, been raised. Yeah, I find that extremely disconcerting because I really thought, okay, one of the reasons why we were so ignorant is that we're over here. We're over here, so we're not there. But now what I'm hearing from you is, so you were raised in Israel and you were still not taught about what happened right there. I, I, that's unbelievable to me that that is, I mean, no, I guess it's not. It's very believable to me, but it's it's so disappointing. Um, so my next question for you is since 2002, um, how have you felt you've seen your movement over in Israel? And this is something that comes up a lot for me when I, I'm talking about Israel and I'm like, look, they, their government is no more indicative of their people than our government is indicative of our people. And you would never know that a resistance exists here, and it does. And so I know that you exist over there, that our like fellow resistance exists over there. But what kind of successes are you seeing? Because we'll never hear about what happens over there if it's good. Like anything that would be remotely anti-Zionist will, will not make the news here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is unbelievable, but also true. I can tell you that uh, I grew up near uh, Ashdod, south of Tel Aviv, formerly the Palestinian town of Isdud, that was destroyed. And I never knew anything about that. And I was growing up and there were uh, remains of houses uh, all around. I grew up in a farming community. Uh, Somewhere here and there in the field, there are still some, some now. There were more when I was uh, growing up. And I used to think of them as some ancient remains, but they were remains of towns and villages from the first half of the 20th century. When my grandparents came to this area, there were still people living there. I never knew that. It never even crossed my mind until I got to, to university. And this is really how most Israelis grow up. We are told stories about ancient villages or some Bedouins that were coming and going, but not really, um, you know, learning about any kind of civilization that was really destroyed at the time. Now, um, I don't want to say that the government is not indicative of the people in Israel. I think uh, to, to a large amount, it, it really is. Uh, and the Israeli public is taking, of course, a sharp turn to, to the left. Uh, Anti-Zionist Israelis are very few, although we try to, to be as vocal as we can. And I think we have more influence uh, than we usually get credit for. What I can say has changed in the 20 years that Zohot has been active uh, is that the term Nakba itself 
became completely common and known to everyone. Uh, and formerly, no one even knew uh, what it meant. The first name of the Zohot, before it was Zohot, was Nakba in Hebrew. And one of the stated goals was to make Nakba a term in the Hebrew language. Um, and that, to a large extent, happened. Everybody knows whether they are right or left or center. They know what the Nakba is. Now, knowing what it is doesn't necessarily imply that uh, they agree that it was a crime against humanity or that they agree that it has to be redressed. That's a different kind of work that still needs to be done. Uh, but I think that's a step forward. And even if I see, and we saw it just this weekend, uh, some right-wing um, gangs, I can call them, including a Jerusalem council member, marching uh, through the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in, uh, in Jerusalem and chanting, we want Nakba now. And we hear that more and more. We gonna so it's this double speak of the Nakba never happened, uh, but we're gonna do another Nakba. If you Palestinians keep resisting, and you hear that more and more, and as horrifying as it is, I think it's a step forward from complete denial. So this veil of denial is starting to, to be lifted uh, by the right even more than by the left. And, and I think that's really a step forward. It's a step, it's a stay, <laughs> a phase that we have to go through, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, we're not anywhere near that here. We're, we're still dealing with, like, we're sort of behind you on that. We're still dealing with, you know, our legislators, the people that are supposedly... Um, knowledgeable about, uh, you know, geopolitical affairs, these people don't acknowledge that that ever happened. And these are the people that are determining our military budget and our policy and how we deal with the state of Israel. And yet they're not even looking at real facts. And this is something that I feel like I'm still trying to get over that hurdle. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like I can't have a discussion with you about the best way to go forward if you don't even acknowledge what the actual history is. How are we like you, we're just dealing at this from two different universes. And I think that for me, I always considered myself a, whatever we would say we now a liberal Zionist. So, yes, I believe that the Jewish people were entitled to a state. But I recognize that the Palestinians should also have their space, hence this idea of a two-state solution, which now I think is ridiculous. Um, and I, it's just so entitled, this, this air of entitlement, like because our Bible says that we're entitled to this land, we're entitled to this land. And I, I just can't get past that we're in the century that we're in and people are still in that mindset. Um, it's like, it's no more our history than everyone's history. Everyone's history is that same space. And yet half the people, uh, aren't allowed back in so that they can keep their majority. And it's just, um, where do they go from here? How do, how do we initiate a right of return? Well, I think 
One of our most successful strategies uh, to, to break these issues to more people is to talk about Zionism itself. And I really like the title of your show. Um, and I think when you look at what Zionists uh, said and wrote, and they wrote a lot, as you know, um, you just can't miss the connection with the colonial powers at the time. And the, the Zionist stating itself, the Zionist movement as a colonial movement, Herzl said Zionism is a colonial thing. Um, and there are, you know, dozens of very explicit uh, quotes that I can bring from, from Zionists. So the connection of Jewish people uh, to Palestine, the land of Israel, is well established. And Jewish people came to that land for generations before Zionism. And we really have to divorce uh, these two ideas of uh, Jewish faith, Jewish culture, the spiritual connection uh, to this land, to the holy places, and with a colonialist movement that came there um, not to worship, not even to uh, live emancipated life, but to replace other people and to take control over the land uh, from them. So these are two very different things. Uh, and it's really all in Zionists' own words. And, and we need to learn them and, and read them more carefully to understand what Zionism is. And uh, I think not so many people can support it nowadays anymore. Uh, definitely not when in the US and everywhere else, uh, the conversation about colonialism um, is, is getting more and more vocal. Yeah. Do you want to talk about like contemporary stuff? Well, we're and we are speaking with Rachel Bietier. I think I said it right. Bietier. Yeah, I don't. I'm it's never like going to get it. It's like Boutier, you know, <laughs> project. Uh, director of Zucrot, which is a anti is an Israeli anti-Zionist organization. Uh, you know, we have uh, seen sort of this uh, attempt to. Uh, kind of rewind the clock with BB uh, getting back into power as the prime minister. And we also, as I always like to, um, when I mention our congresswoman, who Jen ran for Congress against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who I'm sure you know very well, uh, you know, she's an, a completely ineffectual legislator. But when the opportunity to present any type of uh, anti-BDS legislation uh, she is right at the forefront. In fact, she's uh, either a, a draftee or a co-signer, uh, right at the top. Uh, here in South Florida, you have one of the biggest Zionist contingencies in the whole country. So it is very difficult to fight back uh, even tepidly on that front to try to bring people along. Uh, but I agree with what you're saying. Uh, even with a congresswoman as bold as Rashida Tlaib, who is willing to take the slings and arrows, and she's doing it right now. Uh, as soon as Congress got into session, she immediately got on the House floor and started talking about how Israel is an apartheid state and we have to do something about it. So continuing to fight on that front, I think, is very important. 
So on the one hand down here, we do have the contingency of the Israeli Zionist movement that is still very strong. There are still Holocaust survivors who continue to um, perpetuate that myth, that uh, myth, if you will, that if there isn't, um, if, if we're not warding off all of the Palestinians, then Isra Israelis, uh, Jews will have, will cease to exist. And then on the other hand, you do have this growing movement uh, of individuals, including congressional representatives, thankfully, that are finally starting to speak up about the half-truths or if not complete falsehoods about the realities of what it's like to be in Israel. How do you see it evolving as we go forward? Because I know that there are those who are going to continue to cling to, uh, you know, APAC and DMFI. Well, uh, DMFI. Uh, but there's a, there is a growing contingent of people who are starting to fight back against that. I would say the biggest problem that you have in the Democratic Party right now is that I do believe one of the reasons Hakeem Jeffries was named the successor to Nancy Pelosi is because he's in bed with the Israel lobby as oh, yeah. hard as anybody in, on either side. It's scary. Uh, he's really in there. And I think that that had a lot to do with it. So I do think that this is going to be Like a it go forward. How do you see it unfolding from an American political going into this? Set? Well, obviously, you know the um, U.S. Uh, political arena better than I do. Um, I think, in a way, this uh, government of horrors. <laughs> that we just got elected. Um, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think it's, it's, it can be an opening um, to more delegitimization uh, because it's so rampantly racist, anti-democratic. And I was honestly really worried uh, last year when uh, the uh, so-called government of change came to power with the Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, which we call the change for the worse, um, that internationally they will be received as some kind of actual change for the better, as more legitimate, as more centrists, and, um, you know, more uh, acceptable for the American administration or for European governments. Um, and I think that really happened. So uh, in a way, we can hope that uh, I, I think uh, Netanyahu is someone who did more than anyone else to, to make Israel a contested issue uh, in the US. Um, but yeah, I think here as well, when you, I mean, the. Um, political field within the Jewish population in Israel is um, supposedly divided to right and left, but you talk to most of the self-proclaimed left or center-left, um, and they just don't want to talk about Palestinian issues. They don't want to acknowledge, even if they acknowledge the Nakba, by the way, they would not acknowledge that the Nakba is still ongoing. That's something that's 
really important to understand. It's not a historical event, um, but an ongoing process of dispossession that started with the Zionist movement and peaked in 1948 and still ongoing. And you see the same ideology and the same practices of 1948 in display right now in Sheikh Jarrah, in Masafariata, in the Jordan Valley, uh, and also within Israel proper in the, in the Negev desert, where communities of Bedouins that are supposedly Israeli citizens are being displaced. Um, so this is something that we need to keep work on in every arena, and I think it's a big movement, uh, Palestinian-led, uh, with our job is within the Israeli society. Um, you guys' jobs are in the U.S., and, and there are people all over the world within Jewish communities, within political parties, and we need to keep pushing and educating to connect these dots uh, and to make people realize the uh, roots of the Zionist movement, this ongoing process, uh, the lack of any real concept of, of citizenry in Israel at all. Um, and to, how would I say that? Um, to nurture a Jewish culture that isn't related to Zionism. And I think we need to create a story. I, I think the Zionist story is very strong and I can understand why people are, are hooked up on it, you know, um, and, and are not willing to divorce from it. Um, and, and, and I believed it for a very long time, longer than I care to admit. Um, I think it's a strong story of uh, uh, people, dispossessed people coming back to the land. Um, it fails, but still very captivating. And we need to build a narrative that is just as strong. Um, a narrative of hope, a narrative in which uh, Jewish people have a place if they're willing to let go of supremacist ideas. Um, in a narrative of um, a state or a space that can be inclusive to everyone. And that's what we need to work in, to work on in, in all arenas. Yeah, I, this I think that the, the biggest problem we've had, I think has been very fear-based education. Yes. We're having technical difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Um, so the, yeah, I can hear you. It's on our end. We're having technical problems. We're having a bad signal situation here. Sometimes when we do it during the day, I think that that happens more. I don't know why. You think there's more people on? It's possible. Um, I don't know. But yeah, we are taught very fear-based thinking. And the Zionists used that. And I actually feel angry and used by it because a very good portion of my life, I really believe that narrative. And it's very upsetting to me to feel like I was a tool in that. And I remember I've been to Israel once. I was there when I was 16 years old with Alexander Muss High School in Israel program, um, which is really just a group of entitled <laughs> of entitled white Ashkenazi Jewish kids from Florida predominantly coming over there with some sense of ownership. 
Um, and now then I, when I see people doing birthright, it disgusts me to no end. Like, I mean, I, I just, I do ads on TV for that. I'm, I'm so, it's very frustrating to me. And, and where I, where we live, this is very dominant. Like this is any Jewish kid that grows up in South Florida, you're either going to do birthright or you're going to do high school in Israel. It's like part of your mission. And we're still in that way, brainwashing little Zionist tools um, to continue it. And you've got groups like APAC here. Um, APAC is the reason why more people won't speak up. APAC and DMFI are the reason why we have very few political leaders that will say anything. Because even though they might agree, they don't have the courage to stand up to those organizations because they're scared of losing their position. And so this is what we're facing. We're facing, even with all the accurate information, we're still fighting this mountain of Zionist money that has basically bought our government. Yeah, and I think fear-based education is, is very accurate, and it's the same here. Um, and what you need to, to, to counter it is hope-based education. Right, we really need that. And and by the way, here and there, we are hearing about people who came here for birthright um, and just being here opened their eyes to, to the realities. Um, on, on the ground, it doesn't happen a lot, I think, but it happens sometimes. And um, there are excellent programs like Extend um, that pick up uh, where birthright le <laughs> leaves uh, people off and, and try to educate them. Um, and we need to keep doing that. And, and we need to talk about hope and we need to talk about Jewish heritage of, of social justice, right? And of inclusivity, because we have that. We don't have only that, but we have that um, in our history, in, in our heritage. And this um, sympathy to the Palestinian claim and, and empathy to Palestinian refugees, it's still today uh, the largest group of refugees in the world. Almost 7 million Palestinian refugees in the West Bank, Gaza, neighboring countries. It's an ongoing crisis of just massive proportions. And for me, if I'm coming from a very personal point of view, I am the daughter of a refugee. So how can I not empathize with refugees and with this basic just claim of wanting to return home, of wanting to live a safe life? Why should it be a threat for me? Why should I fight it? Why should I not work for it? Um, and, you know, most, most people that live around me, whether they agree with me or not, um, they came from other refugehood or immigration, um, came here by this or that. Uh, usually, somewhere in their, uh, our histories, there's some kind of disposition. Um, so this aspiration for a just society um, for a non-hierarchical society, this rejection of supremacy, 
that that's the true lesson of um, you know every persecution that that our ancestors suffered. This is the true lesson of the Holocaust, as I see. Yeah. It. Um, you could almost say yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really perplexing that um, that people don't see it. And I think the dehumanization of Palestinians um, and Arabs and Muslim in general, but, but um, especially Palestinians, uh, runs really deep, of course, in Israel, but I think in all Western societies. And that's something that really needs to change. Yeah, I mean, when you really think about it, and this is how I've started thinking about it, is that really Zionism is the antithesis of what Judaism is really about. And there are so many things that Zion, Zionism perpetuates and somehow Jews based on fear have accepted this exception to what would actually be religious doctrine because nowhere in the teachings in Judaism does it say oppress the other. Like that's that's not really what what it's about. And it is ironic that post Holocaust, you had people like that were just completely destroyed going and doing the same thing to another group of people and that we're still not seeing it. And I now have gotten to the point where you might support the right of an ethno state, but I'm not going to let you do it and also claim it's a democracy and that it's not an apartheid state. So if you want to say I support a Jewish ethno state at all costs. Fine, you're entitled to that opinion. I disagree with you. But you cannot then claim it's a democracy. You cannot claim that it's not an apartheid state. And these are just facts. Like I, people are not entitled to their own facts. You know, you're entitled to your opinion, but I just I cannot allow people to keep saying these things like without any sort of like challenge. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. No, the hell it is. You know, it's like when half your people or more than half your people don't have the same rights, you're not a democracy. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I feel I mean, I can't imagine that if I were living in Israel, that I would not be trying to be part of your resistance and trying to help and do whatever I could. And I actually have a question. Do you guys do delegations I know that Eyewitness Palestine does some. Um, they haven't announced any for this year yet, but like, do you guys do that? Because I really would love to go back with a different perspective. I, I would like to go back to the same places and see them from a different angle than I did when I was there. Yeah. Um, so, well, uh, well, first of all, we don't, we often, uh, host delegations. We don't organize them uh, ourselves, but um, we host many groups uh, as part of their Palestine visit. And one of our core activities for many years is tours to destroyed Palestinian villages, uh, towns or cities uh, destroyed or just depopulated. Some of them still exist, but, but without the people, um, in which we um, just explore what was there uh, and also try to reimagine what could be there uh, when Palestinian return happens. Um, and I find that very effective. Uh, we do this for Israeli groups, especially 
um, and sometimes organize tours that are just open to anyone. Um, especially if you grew up, and I told you before that uh, I grew up like all Israelis on Palestinian land uh, and never knew this. Um, places that are really familiar, uh, to see them in the new, in these new eyes, to realize that you don't know the real history of your own birthplace, uh, on, on where you grew up, on, of where, where you live. You just don't know it. It's really eye-opening, um, and try to, to imagine what this, uh, space, this piece of land looked like just 75 years ago. It, it looked completely different. Uh, you just imagine a whole map. And we actually have some tools to help you imagine that even if you're not really on the ground. Uh, we have the Nakba map on our website, zahot.org. Okay. Um, and we have an app. Uh, we have a mobile app called uh, iReturn the letter I, return, uh, that you can download on uh, Google Play or Apple Store um, and actually see all the destroyed Palestinian localities. Uh, click on them, learn about their histories, uh, see historical and current photos of them, uh, sometimes also videos. And if you are here, also navigate to them. Use Google Map and explore them yourself and we find that this is uh, this mapping project is a really effective tool uh, to help people understand what was uh, erased from the landscape and from textbooks and and what is hidden from them and you know this is half the work already to to start reimagine what could be here or what still can be here if people want to connect with you directly, can they go to zakrat.org? Uh, is there contact information there yeah. as well? That's Absolutely. how I found her. Okay. Well, you're the you're the you're the sleuth here, so you definitely have uh, done what um, is uh, certainly needed. I'm just really trying to build as many bridges and make as many connections and connect as many anti-Zionist thinking people. I feel like the bigger the web is, the bigger the connection. So I like having like just I, I'm just trying to create as much information for people as possible. And I feel like it goes in so many different directions. You know, like you didn't know about us. We didn't know about you. And now it's sort of like just one more. It's one more connection. So I'm very appreciative. Well, if you do end up making a trip out to Israel. Oh, I no, I'm definitely going to go back. And well, I, and I want to. there now. So. Well, I have a few. I actually have family. I have family in the old city. And um, let's say that they're not probably very pleased with me. Um, <laughs> I there are a lot of people in my family that are probably not talking to me. I like that. I, I just I, I don't really because they're very into it. You know, my cousin built the Chabad right here. I can't like this is like it's ingrained. It's ingrained. I'm slowly but surely working on my dad. My dad is slowly but surely coming around, you know, like I'm trying. But I was on a Jewish voice for peace phone call recently, a big membership Zoom call. And there, there were over 300 people on it, which I was floored and more than half of those people were older people were people of my parents generation which pleased me even more 
because I, I really figured that's the group that we need to reach that isn't as reachable here. And I was very pleasantly surprised. So I, I was somewhat hopeful from seeing that. And I do feel hopeful when I talk to people like you. And I just feel appreciative that I don't feel as lonely as a Jewish person anymore, because for like the past 10 years, like up until recently, I was just I don't even know what to do with myself. And then I started affiliating with groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and meeting people. And it's just, it's much better now. So I appreciate you in that journey. Thank you. I appreciate you. And yes, we're hearing more and more of people opening their eyes and those journeys that, that we make. I think they hold a lot of information uh, on how it can be done on, you know, on, on a larger scale. And yeah. I really appreciate the work that you do and the chance to, to talk to you because I think building these connections is crucial. Thank you. I, and by the way, if there's anything that, that I can do in terms of a contact here for your organization, I don't know what sort of like, um, you know, if you have any sort of like chapters or if you have things over here, like, I don't know, but feel free to reach out if there's anything I could ever do to, to help promote or help your organization. Thank you. I'd Rachel, that. thank you so much for coming on this afternoon. Uh, obviously, it is uh, nighttime where you are, so we don't want to keep you too much longer. And of course, uh, guys, if you currently are not uh, either aware of Zucrot.org, uh, please go over yeah. there and check it out. Get educated. Yeah, it's very important because there's a lot of people down here, especially, you know, the, the one silver lining that I will say, Rachel, as we depart, is the youth are all right. They definitely get this uh, yeah. in a way that the older generation doesn't. Yeah. And very much like what it, what the it, it the first time I really noticed the splits was during the Bernie Hillary primary in 2016, where it was so clear that at a certain age, it was like 45 or 50, everyone was skewing heavily towards Hillary. And everyone below that age was skewing heavily towards Bernie. And so a lot of that change that's coming, the skew is definitely in a very similar age range. Where and a lot of the happening? older people are dying off. And that is something that we actually have to like plan in our, our district. And thankfully, a lot of the old people are dying off and the young people are coming in and that's what we need. We need to shift it, you know? Well, that, but it also depends on how active you're willing to be because the older generation is extremely active and the younger That's generation true. is active to a point. And so staying We're involved is, you know, definitely the key. But if they stay involved, then anything's possible. And so we can't thank you enough for coming thank you, on this Rachel. afternoon. It was nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You. Have, Have a good night. Good work. <laughs> Much appreciated. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, imagine my complete surprise when I come across that there's literally an organization whose purpose is to educate about the thing that I've been like running around for the past two years with my head blowing off. How did I not know this? But now I think about it and it is Martin Luther King Day. Oh, you mean when I was in Israel? Well, you know what? We didn't go to we didn't go to Palestinian areas. In fact, we were very much restricted in where we went. So we didn't see what I now want to go see. We didn't see that. We really didn't. And it was very, very skewed and very insulated. Um, and, you know, look, we didn't have social media. The information wasn't as readily available. I couldn't go on Instagram and see this. I follow something on Instagram called I am Palestine. And 
that was not an existing concept. There was no, like you didn't hear about the stuff, but no, it is embarrassing. And I feel horrible about it. And it's something that I have to like, you know, it's penance. And I, and this is a big part of why I'm doing this series is because it, it sort of, in my mind, if I can educate more people, then at least I'm trying to salvage what I can from where I come from. Like, I, I, I can't explain it. It's very disheartening, people. It really is. Like, this was a very difficult thing for me to deal with. It I, was not easy. I think it's also uh, logical that in any community, whatever it may be, uh, this is Martin Luther King Day. And so there's a lot of people in all corners that are going to have a very loud bullhorn talking about how we have to care about people of color. But the truth is you have gatekeepers in the white community and the black community. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so as a result of that, you are always going to have a hierarchical structure that is going to stay there a la, you know, you have um, who would be a good example. Uh, uh, Al Sharpton would be a good example of that. And then in the Jewish community, you have people like a Bibi Netanyahu, but you also have them here in the United States. You have, uh, yes, you have the Debbie Wasserman Schultzes of the world. Um, they Chuck have a Schumer. They have to try, yes, well, Ohio and Adam Schiff. No, Adam Schiff is a great. There's a, there's a lot of them, but you know what? I wanted to say something because when we were talking to Rachel, and I'm sitting here and I'm thinking. God, that's amazing. She grew up in Israel around the, the displaced places where the people lived and they still weren't taught that. Right. And I don't know why I would even be remotely surprised. So do you remember a couple of years ago when I learned of the Tulsa massacre? Mm. Yeah. So we're Martin Luther King Day. The amount of, of history that we're not taught in this country that now somehow is being relegated as critical race theory is absurd. Okay. I and we had Margaret come on that year to come and sort of give us the history lesson on the Tulsa massacre. So we're not taught history of how we treat the other. We're not taught how we treat the the, the oppressed communities. We sure as hell weren't taught that what I now call six grandfathers was never meant to have presidents faces carved in it. So like we're not taught accurate history. And I think the more that we wake up and, and you still see they're still pushing inaccurate history. They're still wanting to ban books. Um, this is why I'm so vehemently, like, completely non-negotiable pro-First Amendment. <laughs> because it isn't everybody's right to say something as much as it's everybody's right to hear something. And I am not liking when you stifle conversation because that's how we become more and more ignorant. We are not taught proper history. So on MLK Day, let's be aware of that from a global perspective, that we are not taught proper history. I don't like that I wasn't taught about what happened to the indigenous people. Not properly. Not properly. I'm not talking about the pilgrims and the Indians sitting down and our little kids making hand turkeys and putting feathers in their hair. Oh, like, come on. Were you the pilgrim or the Indian? I was the Indian. I don't even remember. I didn't like I any of that crap. I never. Well, th the thing is, is that you know, now knowing what we know, why are we still having that? Why are we still having, like, I, I don't understand well, that. Change doesn't seem to come easy for a lot of people. No. So apparently it's just the nature of colonialism, the nature of white supremacy is that we, wherever we go, we dismantle genocide, displace, and get rid of the indigenous people, lie about who they were, whitewash their entire culture, and then not teach anybody after the fact that it even happened. 
That seems to be the thing. And here's what I'm noticing. It's not really working out well for us. It's really not. Not really. I mean, when you live in a world that we're one of the rich, we're the richest country in the world. Are we, are we the richest yeah. country? Okay. Yeah. And yet people are barely able to make ends meet. And that's and successful. Not, and again, How is that successful? And again, it's not a few people. It's, oh, no. It's most. tens of millions of people. It's a majority. Are I'm barely gonna, getting I'm by. I'm not going to say it's a majority. What I would say it's that, I mean, let's, let's What are you talking about? Way. Most Americans couldn't afford a $400 emergency. Is it? That's is it safe to say that there is over a hundred million people in this country right now that are struggling to just live? Yes, they are. Like literally to just live. That's I'm, pretty bad. It's all bad. I was just talking about this with my son the other day, like how we're just basically so brainwashed and how it's swung so far that we accept so little. And it's it, it can be summed up by the phrase, this is one of my favorite phrases, student lunch debt. Did you know there's student lunch debt? I sure do. Okay, so student lunch debt, when you are in a country that has something called student lunch debt, I think it's time to really acknowledge that you're a failure as a country. I'm sorry, but that's just, if you are a country as rich as this, but then you have a phrase like that, you're a failure. You've completely failed your people. And the only thing that keeps us where we are is might makes right and military colonialism. Because I got to tell you, when it comes to like grading in terms of like our citizenry, we get big old F. And, we, and that goes for our education too. This is why I can't stand holidays like this. It just puts me on a rampage. And not to mention all the friggin' sanctimonious liberals that probably don't know the first thing really about Martin Luther King sitting there and quoting him. Well, I would say that probably more than anything else, the importance of today, as I'm often, or, or we had pointed out, is Martin Luther King was not assassinated because he was preaching racial equality. He was assassinated because he was trying to mess with the economic neoliberal world order. In terms of labor, <laughs> in terms of union organizing and anti-war sentiment. The second you start doing that is you're on the radar. He was, a, he, it was, the anti-Vietnam thing was a huge why do you think Fred, why, do you th why do you think Fred Hampton was assassinated? He was assassinated because he was trying to bring rural whites and urban blacks together. And the second you start doing that is you start messing with the economic world order. And there are people in very high places that like a, yeah, I'm going to say it, like the Bill Gates of the world. All they have to do is just a wink and a nod. They don't have to say anything. It's much like when Hillary knew what was going on regarding sabotaging Bernie during the 2016 primary. Did she have to outright say that we're rigging this primary? Or did she just have to give a wink and a nod to certain people to basically say, I don't know nothing, I don't care, just get me elected by any means necessary, I don't give a didn't shit. Didn't work well. Didn't, well, no, ultimately the well, queen couldn't get the crown, but nothing pleases me. she more. tried very, very hard. And that is correct. He was deemed a threat. But not because of why most people would think. He was deemed a threat because he saw the class war. He saw the class war. He was a socialist. This is somebody who believed in basically coordinating all the poor people together to take over the, the, the top people. That's extremely dangerous. It wasn't fair because point. he was talking about. Fair point, Marcus. Very fair point. Uh, this one's for this one's for anybody who's ever been persecuted. For smoking Nobody wants you to, to smoke for them. You don't need to smoke. Just smoke for yourself. But mm. I would also argue that there are very many um, 
many that sucked. black it leaders. Two tries. Well, because you wait until I smoke it, you got to fill up. Like that are not that don't get the recognition they deserve, whether it was because they weren't able to whitewash them as much. Like, let's say Malcolm X, maybe his history couldn't be as whitewashed. And, and you know, I don't know what do you, what would you call it? Like acceptable to white people as, let's say, Dr. King. Like, you you know, it was uh, there's just more of an amenable, an amenable personality, a more between, fall in line personality. Well, I don't Dr. know. Dr. King and, and Malcolm X definitely had very similar messages. The difference is, is that MLK was much more stoic and presentable in the way he did it. Whereas Malcolm was very in your face and very unapologetic about it. And there were a lot of people like that, that we don't talk about. And one of my favorite people, and just for anybody, like I have a personal Instagram, but I, I've posted two things in like five years. And one was the other day, I actually reposted this. It was this really cool video clip of James Baldwin. There are many. And, um, it was just very, very poignant. A lot of things he said were very poignant. But he is one of those people in history that I feel like we just do not give enough due and credit. And he was so brilliant and ahead of his time. If you have never seen the debate between James Baldwin and uh, some, no, I, I think I'm I'm forgetting. Who his are you name talking about right now? Uh, the the gentleman who was part of the Buckley. Uh, William F. Buckley. If you have never seen the debate oh, between James Baldwin. William F. Buckley and James Baldwin, it's glorious. I highly recommend that you see it. He was just a beautiful, brilliant person. Like he, he the way he spoke was beautiful and eloquent, and and just he's. I love. I. I he's very Bal poetic. James well, I mean, Baldwin. I was a poet, but like, yes. but like for somebody to be poetic but also be saying things that are so relevant and poignant in the moment. Like a lot of people are good poets, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to really speak about what's going on in the moment poetically. That's correct. And let's also not forget uh, James Baldwin uh, was uh, very close, apparently more than just friends with uh, Marlon Brando. So he had quite an impact on society for. Well, Marlon Brando was very, very fluid in a lot of ways, always was. And it was one of those things that, you know, we were so we're such more puritanical about stuff now than we were then. I don't think it was necessarily public knowledge, but definitely in those circles, there was a lot of fluidity. And Marlon Brando was very all over the place. Yes. And also a very kind of artistic minded um, person. Well, I think Marlon was also odd on purpose. I, I don't know. I think he was, you know what? He was just very much, I think, very smart, very um, artistic, very in his own head. There's certain people that are just artists. By the way, if you haven't seen uh, Apocalypse Now, see that film. That's a film that will really open your eyes. Uh, yeah. I guess See, I'm now I filled it. it for you. See, now you'll like it. Um, yeah, Cornell is brilliant. I met Cornell West. It was embarrassing for me. I was an idiot. It happened. I hope he just, you know what? I'm sure it just not anything he would ever remember because that, I just went up in smoke. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, there you go. I was an idiot in front of Cornell West. That's what well, happened. big fan you were, and I'm I sure big fan I was, and it was that was embarrassing. We do have to talk about obviously this big story. Uh, 
I think, and of course, it's assuming that we even are able to get, uh, for those of you who are joining us late, uh, we've had a very modest uh, amount of people who have been watching today. Our internet connection is really off. It's not bad right this second. No. Uh, It's fine right now. What is it you're wanting to talk about, Biden? Are you wanting to talk about Biden documents? Come on, man. It's very important. Can I tell you, I don't even pay attention to any of this. It's like a circus. This is a circus. Boy, that looks like a stoic gentleman of some sort. All right. He's missing his white hood. He sure looks like it. But so for those of you who obviously know, um, one of the things that we do point out on our show, even though we are certainly on the populist left side of politics, is the hypocrisy that we see all too often when it comes to you know, sort of this uh, good versus evil type of political nonsense that both sides try to perpetuate day in, day out. As we know, President, tr- former President Trump was caught with classified documents. And so that was turned into a very big story, uh, but one that now has come full circle. Why? Because President Biden, who wasn't president at the time, which makes it even worse, has classified documents and technical... We're having internet connectivity issues. So House Oversight Chair wants more information on docs from the White House. So James Colmer on Sunday slammed President Joe Biden and his team for their handling of classified docs. And they mentioned the State of the Union. We would never have known about the possession of the classified docs were it not for investigative reporting by CBS that somehow got a leak. Obviously, that is from inside the White House. No question about it. To determine that this had happened prior to the election. Now, why is this significant? Because, again, if this information had been presented, whether prior to the 2020 election or even the 2022 election, there is no question that this type of impropriety would have played a role in a number of independent. Again, this is the, also the big problem we talk about all the time with the Democratic liberal mindset of it's Democrats versus Republicans. No, it's actually not. It's Democrats here, Republicans there and independents, which make up over half the voting population. And they ultimately decide which side they want to go to. So if a story like this were to come out, they may decide, well, I cert- listen, I, I can't stand Trump. Oh, I can't stand the Republicans, blah, 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 blah. But if there's one thing I do know is that the ultimate institutional politician, which is Joe Biden, I do not want to send him to the White House for four years, or I do not want a Democratic majority in the House or Senate in 2022. Or I think it looks like he's deceased and just being propped up by a bunch of like elder abusing uh, opportunists. I don't know. Now, the reason, and of course, we all have these theories here, any additional information that's worth mentioning is so essentially what was responded to from the Kentucky representative to CNN's Jake Tapper. The administration hasn't been transparent about what's going on with President Biden's possession of classified documents. That is absolutely true. And we just want equal treatment here with respect to how both former President Trump and current President Joe Biden are being treated with the document issue. I think it's very cut and dry. Uh, is on a technicality, and that's really the thing here, on a technicality, is Joe Biden guilty of mishandling classified documents? The answer is yes, he is. And in part because when he had these classified documents, he was the vice president. He's not even legally allowed to have possession of them. This is a question of what kind of, how much 
whether or not it was overreach regarding President Trump and what he did with classified documents. Remember, the president has the authority, the chief executive has the authority to classify and declassify documents. Now, in this case, President Biden was not the president at the time and was in possession of classified documents. So now the question becomes, are we going to start an impeachment trial in this congressional session? And as we've talked about, I've always maintained it's very likely to happen. And now that you have concrete grounds in order to do it, will it happen is the question. I think, yes, you think. I don't I don't I don't care. But do you think it will happen? Um I mean, look, if there's a way for them to sort of level the playing field, I guess, because think about it, in 24, you could potentially be looking at two former impeached presidents running against each other for president. <laughs> Boy, that would be something. Well, I mean, it's just I mean, me. I don't follow it. any of this. And here's the truth. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about the classified documents. I really you- don't. Now, tell me if there's been a negative effect from something. But the fact that they just go after this to go after this, is that it's like going after Al Capone for tax evasion. I feel like... You know, when you're dealing with people that have committed crimes against humanity, the fact that we're sitting there and nitpicking over who had what documents where, that to me is so, like, irrelevant. Friend of the the show, T.M. Martin of Political Coffee says, Story of the Intercept says that Biden used the classified documents accusation against Jimmy Carter's CIA nomination. And this, it just goes to show you how long Joe Biden has been. No, all of it's disgusting. All of it is absolutely disgusting. But my point is, this to me seems like something that has probably happened to every single administration and has always existed. And so to just be going after that, that it's almost like. I, I can't like find some other Im- unprofessional or, or totally nepotism type thing that's happened in any administration. Like it's just none of that's let's just say this. If these people weren't committing war crimes and profiting off of the suffering of other people, I don't think I'd give a shit about any of that stuff. It's kind of like if my if my representative was, let's say, corrupt but was amazing and did really good things and actually really helped the people and did all that stuff. I don't know that I would notice that they were as corrupt. Like, I just feel like this well, it's is kind of small. The, well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like the argument with Katie Porter. It's like Katie Porter is as good as it gets on the Hill. And there are people that are coming out now, including uh, what is it? Dear white staffers, I think is the account. Yeah. Um, that are basically saying that she is a bitch. Okay. And so don't hang out. Don't be friends. And and if you work for her, understand that she has somewhat of a militant approach to running her operation. And so what does that tell you? It tells me that on the one hand, it matters very much that you have a representative that is working her ass off. If she was just somebody acting like entitled, like a Nancy Pelosi who doesn't really do anything, or like our representative, our rep, our representative who has the same reputation only doesn't get anything done, is actually a net negative of the highest order, yeah, then that's a problem. And people will speak out about that. But the difference with somebody like Katie is that she gets stuff done in the and good stuff. You see, that's I, the yeah. thing. When you hear politicians say, I get stuff done, like, well, oh, you get bad stuff. Well, and I just, I'm so tired of hearing about people's personality traits. Then don't work for them. Don't be friends with them. You know, that's not my issue. Yeah, would I prefer to hear that everybody treats their staff great? Of course I would. But that does not negate some. That's like when people say, you know, if you don't like somebody personally, then they're not necessarily good at what they do. That's not how this works. No, I agree with that. And again, you got stop with the Trump Putin stuff. Like it's not going to fly on the show. So don't try it. 
You want to say that they're in bed with the Saudis? That I agree with, because that's who Jared Kushner has been doing business deals with. And now Elon Musk apparently is involved with that nonsense as well all over in Qatar. So it's let's keep it. Let's keep, yeah, but you, like I you said, understand. it's all the different oligarchs why, and all that stuff. Why do people care what language your oligarchs speak? Again, well, this is this is a global but class we care, we war. Care, but we care on this channel whether or not the Russians are getting proper treatment. First of all, not. I well, I just to me, I, I I don't. You'll all be speaking Sputnik before it's all done. No, we'll all be speaking Mandarin. Oh, the, get out of here! They do not have anywhere near as many nuclear explosives as we have. So. <laughs> That's going to be a big problem. <laughs> I do believe that the leak came from inside the White House, and I think it's coming for two reasons. Number one, I think a lot of them- You think they want to get rid of Joe? Well, they want to get rid of Joe for a couple of but reasons. But they don't have anyone else to put there. They, well, that's not necessarily true. I think they would want to have a primary. But they want to have that primary for a number of reasons. First one, of course, is that right now, if the money is on the table, whether it's Joe Biden against Donald Trump or especially Ron DeSantis, Joe Biden is going to lose. And I don't. I think that there are enough people that are there that are saying, well, we don't want to be, we don't want to have to have blood on our hands, so to speak, knowing full well that our current president is in full cognitive decline. He isn't going to be capable of campaigning in 15 to 20 states around the country to convince people to come out and vote for him. They're going to have to like, it'll be like that movie, Dave. They're going to have to get like get a the, Joe the replica. A double, right? Well, doppelganger. To well, go George, well, George, well, George W. Bush had doppelgangers. He had doppelgangers. It's just so creepy. And so That's it wouldn't so surprise creepy. me at all if they're going to do the same thing with Joe. Uh, I don't know that you so, can find somebody that old and decrepit that isn't actually him. No, that's true. I, I, I do think that there is. Uh, <laughs> and look, I think that there's international sabotage. But let's say, OK, whatever. So they want to they want to get rid of Joe. They want to eliminate him as an option. OK, sure. Who? Who are they putting up? Okay, Team Clinton Gavin is going to put up Pete or, and or Gavin. Okay, so that's Team or Clinton. Even, or even Kamala. There's They're not going to. Really, at this point, I feel I like she's the joke. They have invested so much political capital in the I know. nonsense, even though she's so but they At this point, it's, at this point, they need to see that as a sunk cost. Maybe they, maybe they will do that. They, they're going to put up Maybe Pete and will. Gavin Newsom, right? So that'll be Team Clinton, yeah, right. And then you're, you'll get—I mean, honestly, I, I'm trying to think of like who will. It's just going to—it's going to be ugly. Now the Republican primary is going to be so entertaining because you're going to get like Trump and Pence and DeSantis all in there together. It's going to be now apparently Christy Nome from South Dakota's can say yeah, Christy and, and you'll get uh, oh and um. Well, you know who will come off looking really good is, uh, oh, God, what's her name? I always forget her name. The one they all oh, like. Nikki Haley. Yeah, Nikki Haley. She'll come off looking like the one because they're all going to, like, implode amongst themselves, except she won't. She'll sort of – it's a good opportunity for her. And you bring up a really good point, TM, is that what exactly are they – What Biden is a sitting duck – the second that the corporate establishment chooses not to protect him at all. See, costs. now this changes everything for me. Biden has a Corvette? Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. <laughs> you didn't Everything's, know that? no, I didn't know that. See, now Boy, that changes everything see, Jen, for me. <laughs> Jen lets her liberal 
privileged side come out every once in a while and say, oh, he drives a Corvette. In that case, no, I'm both that's for. not why. And by the way, by the way, because I, my dad had two and my parents were working people and this was back in the 70s and I love old Corvettes. I don't It's not the new ones. It's an, I want, Marquise, I'm thinking an old one. Marquise, the problem with Bernie is running a third time almost never works and he'll never capture the same energy that he had the last two times. And that's not because he doesn't have a great message. It's because of his capitulation both times, and especially the last time, in a way that he didn't have to, but he chose to. And you could say it was COVID. You could say whatever you want. But people will look at Bernie and say, I love your message. I really believe in you. But I know you're going to cave when the, yeah. when the when the when push comes to He's shove. He's not going to take it all away. Can't do that. You I, I feel like that, that you, a third time is just not going to happen. It's just not. There is There is no one in the Democratic side in the Democratic Party that is remotely capable of beating the people on the other side. That's just, there just isn't. There's nobody in the Democratic field that can beat several of the people on the Republican if on, side. If it was up to corporate media, this is the matchup That's they the want. Dream. That's, That's the one they want. That would That's be like a, a, that would be like a Rocky Four situation. Yeah, it would. It would be like really... And it would be East very red. West. It would be red. Only blue. in this case, it's Florida versus California. Yeah, it would be. It would it, be a. I mean, the, they the, would make so much the, money. The headlines would sell themselves, and the <laughs> debates would be crazy. It would be awesome, but you. But I don't know that it. And Newsom is definitely once you take the Californians out of it because they don't like him particularly. But he's definitely more, I think, aesthetically appealing. Um to most people in the Democrat that are party people. Now, don't get me wrong. If it's Newsom versus DeSantis, it's DeSantis all the way. Oh, yeah. But you're going to- I'm talking within the party. The, I mean, Newsom versus Pete, it's Newsom I just think will come the, out I, on top I, of the, that. The big problem that the Democrats have right now is that you're trying to- there is, a, there is a populist uprising that is happening in this country, and the Democratic Party is working tooth and nail to stop it, including defanging the squad- and we're not, we haven't even got, and I don't even know when we'll get into uh, AOC's latest rant. Well, we won't do it today, but we'll it was like an anti force to vote. It was basically thing. saying that these guys didn't get any concessions. And I'm thinking, no, they got a lot of concessions. And then your response to that is, well, you're going to have enemies within your caucus now. And I'm just thinking, is that Alex? Is that you? They, well, this is why. <laughs> this is why the, I still do not understand. Somebody needs to explain to me the point of even having a progressive caucus. If you're not going to cause a ruckus. I just don't understand what the point of it is. The whole point of a caucus is to have your own little power block. The, 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 the whole point of a caucus yeah. is a power block. If you don't do anything with it, is it just sort of like one of those clubs that you just sign your name because it looks good on your resume? This is the problem. Like, I don't get it. Like, if you're the chair of that caucus, is it something, really, is it a resume material? And just a real non-functioning thing. I would love for somebody in that caucus to tell me why we even have one. Because if the best you can do is retract a nicely worded letter asking for diplomacy while still granting ludicrous sums of money, then I don't see the point. I agree. I don't really see the point, And I don't really see what Alex's point was either other than you're trying to stonewall this movement that is desperate for something. There isn't a fight right now that is being perpetuated on the left and you're conceding everything to Hakeem Jeffries? Without even, th this is- Not even a slight push. No, no discussion. 
Was there a discussion? Do you think is there no one else who could have been suitable? Could we have not even had a debate about the best person? Like, I'm telling and you, here's an idea. this is absurd. And this is the thing where people lose trust. So when you say, well, we have to be a united Democratic Party so we can get policy passed because we might be able to convince a few Republicans to come to our side. Who was the Speaker of the House? Your bills, supposedly, listen, you should be fighting for Medicare for all right now just to make sure that McCarthy doesn't bring it to the floor and create momentum. But you're not going to do that because you have too many corrupt members of your own party that don't want it because they are bought and paid for, like our representative, by corporate special interests, including private insurance and big pharma. You are either going to fight as you need to, which means that you are going to have people in your own party hate your guts and wish you were out of politics. I don't understand why you're there. Because it's a great life. Well, I mean, yes, but I want I would like some of them to justify why you're a member of a caucus that doesn't do anything. And by the way, there's a lot of people. Chantel Brown is a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So clearly it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. You said the progressive word has been completely destroyed. Yeah. As yeah. Well, okay. So be that as it may, regardless of what the name means, then I don't understand the point of being a, a, a voting contingency if you don't make anything be contingent on your vote. And not a vote on <laughs> like, anything. Not even doing? one. You haven't even tried it one time. Nothing. And you're allowing Matt Gates to get to get to the left. I got to tell you. And okay, so that I thought. So did you? Bad. So you forward me that Matt Gates was on Tim Pool. Yeah. And I got to tell you, and I'm not a fan of Matt Gates. I think he's pretty friggin' douchey. But he comes off, if you see him on Rogan, extremely reasonable and rational. And like he's actually one of the people putting up a good fight against the corporate nonsense. And he knows exactly. And let me tell you, you can hate Matt Gates from now until the end of time, ladies and gentlemen. Rick Scott is in his late 60s. I'll give Rick Scott probably until 2030, 2036, the latest that he's going to be in the U.S. Senate because Matt Gates is going to get there eventually. He knows exactly what he's doing. The only thing you that can send his way is certain legal complications. That's correct. And he he's could, got I mean, him. And he's got him. But you know what? They always manage to go away. And one of the reasons it goes away is because of his daddy. Sorry, Matt. I can't. Well, not there's deny that. And, and again, I, I am very, you know, my thoughts on the whole thing about him with the girl thing is like, yeah. it's complicated because I do find him lechy and gross. But I, but he's, he is he's allowed not a pedophile. To get, but he's allowed to get on there. And he's allowed to state the truth about what it's like doing business on the Hill that is completely open if somebody like AOC Why or Cory Bush or Jamal Bowman or Rashida Tlaib, anybody, uh, you have this wide open opportunity to be speaking about what really goes on and you're letting Matt Gates do this? Well, and think about how ridiculous this is. Think about how ridiculous this is. These people who didn't get concessions for even voting for a minority speaker, like uh, the minority leader, right? Like you didn't get, and the other side gets concessions for their vote for the speaker of the house. That's arguably a lot bigger of a hurdle to overcome than voting for the the minority leader position. Great, 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 um, you know, full circle here regarding Katie Porter Mm -hmm. and Dianne Feinstein. You know, you have, you know, there are what you would call the true blue liberals that are here in Broward, and a number of them support Jen. 
And a number of them had their opinions because they all watched The View, oh. and whether they agree or not agree with what was said. But the one thing that I found interesting was that a number of them agreed that we need to have term limits. And Matt Gates, of all people, lays out why term limits actually make sense. And so when you have people on the left now saying that we need to have term limits because of a situation like Dianne Feinstein, that is one of the concessions that Matt Gates and that contingent of the GOP was able to get out of Kevin McCarthy. Well, can we just mention for a second what we mean by contingent? Because one, what these people are getting, they're not getting these things. They're getting votes right. on those things. Let us all question for a moment. Why is it that our representatives have to fight so hard to just get a vote on something? See, this to me is absurd. Everything. Everything should be able to have a vote. Everything should be able to have a vote. If you're keeping things from having a vote, then that's the op that's the opposite of a democracy. Am I wrong? So we're, we're fighting over, we're not even fighting over the issues. We're literally, they're fighting over even allowing them to be voted on. That's where we are, people. And that's not the worst one of all. When they say that the GOP didn't get any real concessions are ones oh that will be longstanding. I will tell you that aside from the military budget cut, there was one in particular that is not getting talked about enough. And that one is there is no, they have now prevented the, the House Speaker and anyone within the GOP caucus from preventing any, or I, I guess the technical term or the technical way- Anybody can this get rid that, of the Speaker. Well, it's not, that, that's not it. What it is, is- if you are in a safe district, now, whatever the definition of a safe district may be, plus seven, plus eight, anything above that, considered a safe district. And so what is now happening as a result in the GOP side, now, of course, it's not going to happen in the Democratic side because they're not fighting for that. But on the GOP side, if it is a GOP safe district, the GOP hierarchy stays out of the primaries. These candidates are now allowed to go head to head in a primary. And why are they able to do that? Because no matter what, the winner is going to be a member of the political party in question, in this case, the GOP. They do not have that in the Democratic Party. They did not agree to those terms where somebody like Hakeem Jeffries can bring in his APAC money and sabotage a non-corporate candidate running for uh, office in a democratically safe blue district. That should be a major talking point. Why is the GOP doing this and the Democratic Party isn't? That's a big deal. So you're saying, wait, wait, wait. I, 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 was, I was lost for a second. You're saying they want to have a vote on dark money in their primaries? Yeah, the, the GOP voted against uh, dark money uh, coming after primary challengers in safe red districts. Oh, my God. Every there, see, this is I, the, I, I don't so understand when anybody comes how the Democrats, yeah, oh my like, God. When you come on here, anybody who sure. is on the Democratic side who comes on here to complain that the GOP is bad, there is a reason we've been telling you for a while that Ron DeSantis is the next president. You have to look at these little things and realize that they're much bigger than people are making them out to be. They look better. Imagine they, they look better. They're actually, I mean. You're talking about they're fighting for democratic principle things. But one of the concessions, one of the things they got was their ability to to more easily remove a speaker that isn't working for their for their party. 
You know, the, the Republicans are actually much more concerned with democracy within their own party. Right. They're not concerned with it for the rest of us, mind you, but they, they are definitely more concerned with democracy within their party structure, mm-hmm. and the Democrats are not. No, because the Democrats know that the fight, well, this is also part of the reason, and listen, this is why this conversation can go on forever, but there's a reason why the national security state has completely ingrained themselves within the Democratic side versus the GOP side. Because for them, it's about permanent Washington. It's about keeping the institutions as they are and buying off whichever side they have to in order to keep it that way. There used to be a huge contingent on the Democratic side, especially during the Bush years, that was against what the FBI and the CIA and the NSA were doing. As it stands today, it's completely flipped itself around. There's always going to be one side that says we're against it, one side that says they're for it. That's how this continues and how it never changes. Imagine if Jen were to run for Congress again against Wasserman Schultz and what prospect it would mean if she didn't have to worry about the Democratic Party establishment hierarchy dipping their, you know, getting their, sticking their nose involved in the race. What if I didn't have to worry about APAC? Because that's the thing. This is a plus 12 D district. There is no reason for them to worry at all about what goes on around here. Yeah, the the GOP candidate who ran, uh, Carlos Spalding, who ran against Debbie this last election, got within 10 points. That's still a 10-point margin that isn't going to get broken. And this was the ultimate wave. So to say that these seats are safe would be an understatement. They do not want to challenge the corporate hierarchy. That's what it's about. It's not about left versus right. Blue versus red. This is about labor versus ownership and corporate special interests versus working class. And in, in a lot of cases, it's uh, APAC. It really is. It is. APAC has basically, over the past few years, realized how successful they are. At, they have basically made it their mission to not allow one more member of the squad. Now, I would argue to them, based on what the squad does, I don't see why it matters to you because it's not like they're actually like forming a block and doing anything as a squad. So I don't see why it would matter. Um, I could see why they wouldn't like me. I mean, that I get. I mean, if I were them, I wouldn't like me either. Stoic, I definitely agree agree, uh, with your sentiment here. And yeah, that's a problem. But this is a credential that a lot of people are going to like. That's the scary part. Yeah. There are people who yeah, know right. that he is not only a former soldier, a member of JAG, but he's also got a bloodthirsty streak that Trump doesn't have. But there are going to be people on the right that are going to love it. Yeah, I'm not one of those people. No. And I, I I would also bring up Agreed. Um, which president was it in recent years that promised to shut down Guantanamo Bay? Who was that? Oh, it was well, Obama. Let's not, let's not bring it up. Yeah. It's a bad let's idea. Let's bring it up. Because, you know, Obama was the person who, that was one of his uh, points when he was running, was about shutting down Gitmo. And yet, still, still going on, still going strong, still doing it, still torturing people. I The, the whole thing. And 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 we're and we actually feel like we have some sort of moral high horse about Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. Like, yeah, it's horrible. Imperialism is a horrible thing. But I, I just it's so bizarre to me that you can point it out and not see the hypocrisy. How do we have a place like Guantanamo Bay and then think we can talk or how are we how are we trying to extradite Julian Assange? Let's say that. And then we're somehow saying we're this beacon 
of like righteousness. We're not. No. And this is why I just, the, the hypocrisy is suffocating. So when we see the <laughs> hypocrisy on the supposed left movement, you cannot be hesitant to call it out. It is necessary. The fight must come from the populist left, because if it doesn't, you will concede everything to the likes of Matt Gates. People are desperate and they don't care anymore. So if you're going to allow the uh, GOP to be the appealing party, especially to young people, oh boy, you're, you're totally I got to tell you, when I see stuff like this, they're more appealing to me. Now, I know better. But not everybody knows more than what they see. So they'll look at that and they'll be very drawn to that. You know, these are people that are actually taking a stand and fighting. And I have to tell you, that's what people want. And this is something that I was watching on that dude dissident. Yeah. They were talking about one of their big issues was about how or they were talking about how DSA um, doesn't want. Um, I forget which squad members to be able to say that that you can no longer say you're a member of DSA, that you voted to impede a strike. AOC, Jamal Bowman, and Cori Bush. Okay, so I have to tell you, I agree. You do not get to be part of Democratic Socialists of America if you vote to impede a strike, period. Yeah. Period, end of story. I don't care, stay out of it. You don't impede a strike. That's the whole point, the whole point. Like, And so I, I have to tell you, I, I actually agree with that. If you like our content and you enjoy what we're talking All five about, of you. go to patreon.com <laughs> forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a wonderful member of our small but mighty growing organization. We're almost at 8,200 subscribers. I'm contemplating, I'm contemplating us having a sub stack. Maybe that might be, yeah. We I'm thinking about that. that. So anyway, and now that I found out that they do do um, video. If you're feeling generous for $10 a month, you can become a member getting yourself a mansion parliamentarian, still favorable for the 2024 election. And the Lulu sticker, always adorable. We all know that. But for the very generous people, $25 a month gets you. The I money. remember I thought, God, it won't be that hard to get to 10,000 people. We'll be able to have a merch store. And that is what I ultimately want to do. But we have been unable and suppressed. And a lot of it, you know what, what gets limited, certain things that you put in headlines are getting us limited mon monetary. I have to, we have to like, I really wish we had somebody that knew all this stuff that, that did our stuff. No, certain things that get limited monetization and I don't ah. care, limited monetization. Well, maybe we need it's, to change like the spelling around and stuff. This is, you have to I put certain, does, that's what Tim I'm saying. To, and so Bo is really good at that too. Was, yeah. So let's talk about, yeah, maybe we should try that. Let's try some of what works for them. I don't know. I, and I feel like, you know, but we, we you're putting things in the headline to get people to get the um, thing. But like the headline is something that we might just mention. See? Oh, Maybe. double K. Okay. So here's something. Explain this to me. Double K. You got to hear this. So screw our post office. So I sent out your pencils and Nevin pencils on the exact same day in the exact same manner via my mailbox with a little red flag up. Same postage, same envelope, same everything. Okay. I'm so glad to hear you got yours because Nevin's got returned to me. And here's what really pisses me off. So I put two stamps on it, which is enough via weight. And yet the post office returns it, says insufficient postage, but they counted my stamps. They used my stamps and then sent it back to me for insufficient postage. Now I have to resend it. But anyway, that I find that very annoying. But I'm very glad you got yours. Why would you? Why did that happen? 
post office is a problem. So is FedEx. That's all. It's all a problem. The whole system is collapsing around us. It's crumb. Go to Cash App, or as John Mellencamp says, it's all crumbling down. Uh, go to Cash App dollar sign Gen Change if you are so inclined. We appreciate that support. Uh, and then, of course, what is the discussion on Wednesday? Well, thanks to TM, we will now discuss that on. Wednesday, we are going to have at least one member of Fair Vote, as well as a state house representative in Oklahoma. Um, the gentleman's name is slipping me right now. I think it's Mickey. Let me let me look at it. Oh, uh, Mickey, you're so no, he, you may, like that. I don't know if he Mickey Stokins, I think is his name. Anyway, he's a huge advocate for ranked choice voting, and ranked choice voting just passed in Nevada. And we now have six states in the country that have the type of voting systems that are not a, well, technically not a first past the post uh, voting option. So that is something that we're trying to change. And I think ultimately we will get there. Ranked choice voting is now in Alaska, Maine, and Nevada. Jungle primaries or top two primaries are now in California, Washington, and Louisiana. So we do have a handful of options that are out there, but obviously- Ranked choice voting, when when you say ranked choice voting in those states, is that something that is in their primary as well as their general, or is it just in their general? And then also um, certain municipalities have it, but not others as well. Like for example, New York City, they have that, but the state doesn't have that, do they? Uh, New York only has it in New York City for the mayoral race. It's okay. not for anything else. That's, okay. That's my point is that certain places, which it's still better. It, it, that's one of those things that absolutely can happen uh, gradually and mm-hmm. piecemeal. It can. It's not the same as we could argue about whether or not universal health care can happen that way. But ranked choice voting clearly can and is happening that way. So guys, like, let's get that happening. We, we're, Florida will not be up there with you. <laughs> no, we're definitely, I'm just trying to find out uh, the name of the gentleman who's coming on on Wednesday. But, anyway, but we will be discussing ranked choice voting is your point. Yes, ranked, cho- ranked choice voting is the main topic of discussion on Wednesday. We are going to have a panel. We're still trying to get uh, at least one person from the forward party to come on and talk. Uh, maybe we'll message Andrew. Let's see if he might be available. You want to text him? I could text him. When is this? We're doing it Wednesday, Wednesday night. Hmm. Come on. Wednesday night? I don't know. I'll ask him. Mm hmm. So, yes, I think that this is going to be, uh, you know, a a very important conversation the following week. uh, We are doing a crossover podcast with Due Dissonance. Uh, That'll be at nine o'clock next Monday. And then on Wednesday of next week, we are also doing another crossover podcast. It will be with uh, Mark Savant. Uh, who is a very noted uh, content creator and uh, runs his own YouTube channel and all that. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Obviously, we'd like to plan in advance as best we can, but chip plans always change. We know that. So again, please make sure that you like, subscribe, share, do all those wonderful things. Thanks for putting up with us for this afternoon. Double K, you are way too generous. We love you very, very much. Um, For anybody else. Honestly, uh, I think I'm going to adopt her. As like as like my my surrogate mom on the show because my mom doesn't watch. I don't think my mom watches the show. Even if she did, she wouldn't be donating like that. Even though she no. probably could, but just, no, she's not too no. But I just yeah. TM, always a pleasure, and thank you all, you guys. Stoic, 
Uh, no, not tomorrow. Kevin Wednesday. Kane, Wednesday. Paul, yeah, Wednesday. Wednesday at 9 p.m. Our usual time. Yes. I don't particularly love doing daytime shows. No, but this was an exception today for somebody. Yes, for somebody who is in Israel time. And and we do I do do exceptions for different you but know. That what? was the only reason. Okay, and here's the thing, and I'm putting this out there to, to all you content creator dads. All of you, all you content creator dads that can't seem to manage to get on a podcast past seven o'clock at night. Let me explain something to you. I am not altering my schedule for that any longer. If you live in the United States of America, and yes, that includes Hawaii, you can participate at our regular time and it is a normal working hour time for a podcast. I am sorry. If you live overseas, then I will consider, you know, doing a daytime show. But all of you- She's calling you out, Steve. I'm not just Steve. There's others. There's others. Jordan's going to turn into it. As Let me tell you something. I, Sam, all of you guys. All right. I get it. You love your kids. Okay. I get it. But you know what? This is grown up time and we do evening podcasts. There you go. We'll see you Wednesday <laughs> at nine o'clock. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.